Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be exploring the value of English literature in society. Recommending books about the weather. And the latest news and views in books. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages today on River Radio with Julian and myself. Thank you very much for Deborah uh, for a very good Your Life, Your Way today and good morning Julian. How are you? I'm very well, Heather, on this bright and uh, sunny day. And how are you? Uh, very, very well indeed. Thank you. Good, all, good. All the better for seeing you. Uh, oh, every, that's very kind. <laughs> every week on Turning Pages, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. And as always, we have got a bumper-filled hour designed just for you this week. Yes, we have indeed. And and one of the subjects we'll be talking about is with English literature dropping out of the university's top 10 degree subject applied for by students. Heather, you'll be talking to Tilly Brogan a little later, discussing whether it's still a useful subject to study today. Yes, and we'll be exploring that matter because I think we've both got strong views as well, haven't we, on that? We have, we have. And Julian and myself will also be looking at... Um, books around the topic of weather as we're having rather a lot of weather at the moment yes indeed but i think certainly for my choice it'll it'll probably uh, be a little bit of a change but more of that later uh-huh, okay uh-huh. and now to start the show as usual we've been scouring the newspapers to winkle out those interesting little tidbits of book news for you yes we've got a quick roundup of some book stories that have been spotted in the news recently well, yes, indeed. And literary prizes, as as we know, are vital for writers and authors helping to celebrate the enormous achievements of both established um, writers and emerging writers and providing a platform and support for their work. Therefore, it's really good news that the Rathbones Folio Prize has decided to refresh its format in the light of the recent discontinuation of awards, including the prestigious Costa Book Awards. Now, it was first awarded in 2014. The Rathbones Folio Prize is open to all works of literature written in English and published in Great Britain. Now, the prize is a very handsome £30,000. That's quite good, actually. It is. It is It, 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 it is rather good. And in fact, actually, I think that's probably matches what the Costa Awards used to be. Yeah. Um, now, it's also been announced that from next year, the format of the prize will be broadened. And again, I think mirroring what the Costa used to do, which is to include winners across fiction, non-fiction and poetry. And they'll be drawn from a short list of four. And then one book will be awarded the overall Rathbones Folio Prize. Now, the winner this year was The Magician, written by Colm Toybin. It's a fictionalised biography exploring the life and times of the exiled German Nobel Prize winner Thomas Mann. Now, this historical fiction, it is at its best. Um, the paperback was published in March 
March of this year. Um, Tobin has already written several truly uh, extraordinary and exceptional novels, and the Times and the Independent reckon that The Magician may be the very best oh, of them, great. which is really good. Yeah. Now, I've got a little bit of um, a bit of a postscript, Heather, which okay. I think could be quite fun, and it's to do with the demise of the Costa Book Awards. Mm-hmm. Well, I was having lunch um, at the Seven Oaks home of my friends Sarah and Ian Stockbridge on Saturday last, and their son-in-law, Dara, called by with his daughter, um, Sarah and Ian's granddaughter, to say hello. Now, Dara works for a division of the company that now owns Costa Coffee, and I mentioned the demise of the prize to him. Now, a Dara himself is a great reader, and he was shocked to hear of, of, of the prize's demise because he knew all about the prize. And he said he'd bring it up with his colleagues on Monday. So who knows, Heather, talking pages may well be instrumental in reinstating, reinstating the Costa Book Awards. Well, I jolly well hope so. You're going to have to follow that up, you know. I am, Greg- I am. No pressure on you there, Dara. No, and lots of meals at Sarah and Ian's, obviously. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> obviously that's a literary hub of... Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Now, of course, there's lots of um, author events happening. Now we're in the uh, the late the late summer, early autumn, and it's a recent author event. Novelist and former policewoman Claire McIntosh, who is a great crime writer, mentioned that she entertained old colleagues um, from the police by drip-feeding them with clues from her latest crime thriller, which is The Last Party, and they tried to solve the mystery. Now, there's good news for the people of Reading, because Macintosh reported that the Thames Valley Police Chief and Superintendent was very good at her job, so I'm assuming that she spotted the villain. Uh, Unfortunately, she was also the only copper to crack the case. Oh, dear. Uh, now, on something completely different and historical, a copy of an account of Ernest Shackleton's 1914 Arctic expedition, signed by Frank Wilde, who was his second in command, was sold at auction recently. The copy of South explores uh, the failed bid to make the first crossing of the entire Antarctic continent via the Pole. It's an amazing story, and it tells how their initial optimism was short-lived as the ice flows closed around the ship, gradually crushing it and marooning the 28 men on board on the polar ice. Uh, It's a brilliant book. South is a fabulous book, actually. And the... um, Just the trials and tribulations that they went through Mm. um, is just amazing and but they Mm. did obviously as the book is signed by his second in command that sort of gives it away that they did get to safety yes so that is is just amazing right now bond is the book stories that keeps on giving i always find there's Mm, always something in the paper about (laughs) bond so i spotted one uh, the other day which is the 1970s golden age of bond films when producers sought to create ever more elaborate gadgets for 007 is being showcased this month in what's set to be the most comprehensive collection of bond material ever auctioned and of course it does include some books Uh, But alongside the weapon carried by Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun. Now, do you remember this was created by joining a gold fountain pen, a lighter, a cigarette case and a set of cufflinks together? (laughs) Which sounds as though that's quite a complicated job to do. Um, Anyway, 
Well, alongside that weapon will be a rare, complete collection of first editions. Now, one of which, Thunderball, contains a signed dedication to a former chairman of uh, Thames newspapers, Sir Charles Dennis Hamilton, who was a close friend of Fleming and first urged him to write novels. Now, rare editions in the sale provide an insight into Fleming's creative process and literary influences. And in 1936, a first edition of Diamonds Are Forever is inscribed for John and his blue pencil from Ian. And that's a dedication to his close friend, John Haywood, who worked as an editor and proofreader, hence the blue pencil. And the copy, I understand, has small errors in Fleming's prose marked throughout. (laughs) I must admit, whenever you proofread something, you can guarantee that as soon as it's printed, you spot something else. Uh, Yeah. I know, yeah. <laughs> so I, I know lots of books that's got errors and it is really annoying. Anyway, all the items will be the exhibition at Sotheby's New Bond Street Galleries and you can go along and have a look at them between August the 29th and September the 6th. Oh, that's really good. Now, funny enough, following on from your, your, your piece there now, Heather, um, I read an article in the Saturday edition of the Daily Telegraph which was called Death by Piranha? Mm-hmm. False. Giant Space Mirror? True, and it and it basically was uh, was an article mentioning several of the facts associated with Bond films and right. whether they were true or false. Now there there are so many I I I can't go through them all at the moment. But my favourite is about Rosa Klebb's shoes. Oh, yes. Now, as you may recall, Rosa Klebb was the KGB assassin in uh, From Russia with Love who tries to bump. Uh, Bond off by stabbing him in the shin with a dagger concealed in her shoe. Now. Bladed footwear was developed by the KGB and the dagger was coated with a toxin from the Japanese blowfish. Well, I suppose that's quite a good idea, isn't it? I know. And also, you know, in in the film, Schmirsch was, um, you know, actually Schmirsch did exist and it was a department of the KGB until 1946. And Rosa Klebb, played by uh, uh, Lenny Lott, Lottie Lenya, I beg your pardon, was actually based on a real KGB um, colonel um, by the name of Ribkin Kleb. (laughs) There you are. Yes, exactly. So truth is often stranger than fiction. It is, it is indeed. Oh, and in fact, actually, going back to your Diamonds Are Forever, that that shield um, that's in space also does exist. Oh, yes. That was true. That was true. Now, stop press. Agatha Christie goes all Scandi Noir. Wow. Yes. Now, with her mysterious murders, eccentric detectives and quaint settings, Agatha Christie is considered by many to be the epitome of cosy crime. And uh, whilst cosy crime is a, is a favourite genre, we, we need to think of the success of Richard Osmond to know that. And according to Christie's great-grandson, James Pritchard, we've been misinterpreting misinterpreting her novels for decades apparently now he is the controller of um, agatha christie's literary estate and he was telling the times that her books are serious books and very dark in places and now this is rather chilling christie believed that nearly all of us could murder if we were put in the right or wrong circumstances mm-hmm. interesting yes now the estate has commissioned a scan noir scandinavian noir tv series based on one of agatha 
Agatha Christie's minor characters, which will be broadcast on more four from the beginning of September. Now, the character um, is uh, Hiersen, and it tells the story of Sven Hiersen, a retired Finnish criminal profiler, uh, very much in the mold of Sherlock Holmes with his level of intuition. And he's been forced back out, um, into the fray out of retirement when a journalist is murdered on a cruise ship. Now, the series is set in modern day um, Sweden with subtitles. Now, I'm not quite sure if that means that Sweden always has subtitles or that it's going to be in English with Swedish subtitles or it's going to be in, in English with Swedish subtitles. I don't know. But anyway, it's going to be a good programme. Now, Sven Hiersen was a character invented by the novelist Ariadne Oliver, who Christie created as a friend of Ecuel Poirot. So it's a creation that. of a creation of... <laughs> That's isn't it good? So, the, isn't it? so she's created one uh, one person who's created another yes. who's now come to life or will come to life in a television series. I think it's fantastic. Now, um, Pritchard argues that the um, early adaptations of Poirot were kept deliberately lighthearted and the author remains, because of that, rather underrated and in some ways a victim of snobbery and sexism because she never really quite got the credit she deserved. Um, Agatha Christie wrote 66 novels and 14 short stories before her death in 1976. Now, I'm not sure whether she didn't get the credit she deserved. I think um, um, it's an interesting um, theory he's got. Yes, I suppose it's what the definition of credit is, because I think lots of credit in terms of the amount of books that she sold... Because obviously yes. she's fabulously successful, but she probably wasn't seen as a, a literary writer. Mm. And lots of authors um, claim that's what—that's how they want to be seen. They want to be respected for their writing and their turn yeah. of phrase. Um, but I always think the definition of a literary novel is one that just doesn't sell very well. Well, exactly. Yes, yes, indeed. But didn't didn't Agatha Christie write um, under a pseudonym? She did actually write she a did. series of novels. Yes, yes. Yeah. because I think she was thinking she was trying to break away. I don't know whether she was thinking that I've not got that um, credit for the work. I think she was trying to break away from. Do you know how doing... well they did? No, no. We'll have to no. investigate. Yes, we will. Subject of another program. Yes. So, Nicola Evans, I'm afraid to say, the author of the best-selling book, The Horse Whisperer, has sadly died at the age of just 72. Oh. So, The Horse Whisperer was his first novel and became one of the most successful novels in the history of publishing, dominating the bestseller list when it was published in 1995, notching up sales of over £15 million. And Hollywood also snapped up the rights in a bidding war based on just a few chapters. So he'd written half the book and then he gave his literary agent the idea of the other half. And then they went to Frankfurt Book Fair and everybody was sort of buying it like mad. It was just incredible. And Robert Redford succeeded in buying the, uh, the film rights and he became the director, the producer and the star of the movie alongside Kirsten Scott Thomas and a 14-year-old Scarlett Johansson. (laughs) Anyway, I thought it'd be really good fun to hear a little excerpt from the beginning of the book, which Mike Burton is reading for us. There was death at its beginning, as there would be death again at its end. Though whether it was some fleeting shadow of this that passed across the girl's dreams and woke her on that least likely of mornings, she would never know. All she knew when she opened her eyes was that the world was somehow altered. 
The red glow of her alarm showed it was yet a half hour till the time she had set it to wake her, and she lay quite still, not lifting her head, trying to configure the change. It was dark, but not as dark as it should be. Across the bedroom she could clearly make out the dull glint of her riding trophies on cluttered shelves, and above them the looming faces of rock stars she had once thought she could care about. She listened. The silence that filled the house was different, too, expectant, like the pause between the intake of breath and the uttering of words. Soon there would be the muted roar of the furnace coming alive in the basement, and the old farmhouse floorboards would start their ritual creaking complaint. She slipped out from the bedclothes and went to the window. There was snow, the first fall of winter, and from the laterals of the fence up by the pond she could tell there must be almost a foot of it. With no deflecting wind, it was perfect and driftless, heaped in comical proportion on the branches of the six small cherry trees her father had planted last year. A single star shone in a wedge of deep blue above the woods. The girl looked down and saw a lace of frost had formed on the lower part of the window, and she placed a finger on it, melting a small hole. She shivered, not from the cold, but from the thrill that this transformed world was for the moment entirely hers, and she turned and hurried to get dressed. Grace McLean had come up from New York City the night before with her father, just the two of them. She always enjoyed the trip, two and a half hours on the Taconic State Parkway, cocooned together in the long Mercedes, listening to tapes and chatting easily about school or some new case he was working on. She liked to hear him talk as he drove, liked having him to herself, seeing him slowly unwind in his studiously weekend clothes. Her mother, as usual, had some dinner or function or something and would be catching the train to Hudson this morning, which she preferred to do anyway. The Friday night call of traffic invariably made her crabby and impatient and she would compensate by taking charge, telling Robert... Grace's father, to slow down or speed up or take some devious route to avoid delays. He never bothered to argue, just did as he was told, though sometimes he would sigh or give Grace, relegated to the back seat, a wry glance in the mirror. Her parents' relationship had long been a mystery to her, a complicated world where dominance and compliance were never quite what they seemed. Rather than get involved, Grace would simply retreat into the sanctuary of her Walkman. On the train, her mother would work for the entire journey, undistracted and undistractable. Accompanying her once recently, Grace had watched her and marvelled that she never even looked out of the window, except perhaps in a glazed, unseeing scan when some big-shot writer or one of her more eager assistant editors called her on the cellular phone. The light on the landing outside Grace's room was still on. She tiptoed in her socks past the half-open door of her parents' bedroom and paused. She could hear the ticking of the wall clock in the hall below and now the reassuring soft snoring of her father. She came down the stairs into the hall, its azure walls and ceiling already aglow from the reflection of snow through undraped windows. In the kitchen... She drank a glass of milk in one long lilt and ate a chocolate chip cookie as she scribbled a note for her father on the pad by the phone. Gone riding, back around ten, love, G. 
So the story concerns a teenage, um, Grace McLean, who's being traumatised by a road accident in which her and her friend are hit by a truck while reading, uh, riding their horses. Now, unfortunately, the friend and the horse are killed and Grace and her horse Pilgrim are both injured and uh, both injured psychologically and physically. And in desperation, Grace's mother takes her daughter and Pilgrim to the wilds of Montana in search of a wise man celebrated for his mystical talents of being able to communicate with horses, a horse whisperer. Now, it was in uh, Dartmoor where Evans found out about the fact that these horse whispers existed from a, a blacksmith friend of his. Um, anyway, needless to say, the book got scathing reviews when it was um, printed, possibly because of reaction to the amount of money he got as an advance. But it went on to become one of the best-selling books of all time. Ah, good. And uh, he actually did, um, he was a, a television producer and he did a television a program about Agatha Christie and Hercule ah, Poirot. Right. And talking about uh, Agatha Christie again, uh, yes. whilst we were listening to that um, uh, that reading, um, one of our listeners has uh, has been in touch, uh, Kate, to remind me that it's Mary Westmacott that is yes. Agatha Christie's pseudonym. Right. Okay. Well, yes, maybe then old Mary needs to be a subject of one of our programs. Yes, definitely. And we can explore her books. The voice of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think Beat comes next on the list. Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio because great books aren't just on the bestseller lists. Yes, coming up, Julian and I will be talking about weather in books. But to start off with, I just want to discuss value, what value English literature has in society. Now, that's the question that's been raised in the press recently when Sheffield Hallam University mentioned they're scrapping the degree as part of a decision to defund low-value courses. Now, a low-value degree course is defined as one where less than 40% of graduates find highly skilled employment within six months. That's quite an interesting phrase, Mm. highly skilled. Um, Anyway, um, this week we've got the A-level students nationwide discovering what grade they've received and whether they'll be able to get into the university of their choice. So we thought it'd be sort of interesting um, to discuss this topic. Yes, and as we mentioned before at the beginning of the programme, English has been um, dropped recently um, and it's dropped out of the university's list of the top 10 degree courses A-level students um, have applied for. However, I wonder, though, if it uh, might be a case of uh, false news put out by universities to discourage students from applying for courses which universities themselves have decided are no longer worthwhile. Oh, yeah, gosh, I hope not. Anyway, mm. well, we're going to start this conversation with a perspective from uh, from Tilly, Tilly Brogan from Tilly's Fiction Addiction. Um, and we thought I'd ask her about her views. So Tilly left university just a few years ago. So I was interested in her perspective. So the first thing I did is I asked her what course she studied. I did English and Spanish university. How do you feel about an English literature degree? What do you feel about this um, idea of universities dropping it 
I was, if I'm honest, I was horrified when I first found out. I was doing some reading around why they decided to drop it. And they said that because it doesn't lead to a solid career path. And I think they did like a survey and they asked people if they thought the reason to go to university was to then go on to a career straight away. Obviously, my friends and people around me that did do, I'd say, more like scientific or STEM related degrees are in a really well paid job at the moment. And like they have that job security. But, you know, I'm still employed and I love my degree. And I just think that isn't the point of uni. And English is really important. And Everyone that I say that I did English to, they're, they're quite like, wow, that, that's a really hard degree. There's no right answer in English. But yeah, I was horrified. And I, I just think that that isn't why you really go to uni. Like that is like a sub point of going to uni is to get a job. But everyone's got a degree at this point. You might as well do something you love. And I, you know, that's what uni should be about. And it's about meeting people, exploring the subject that you're into. And I just think I loved my time at uni. I wouldn't have done anything else other than English. So, yeah. Sad, really sad, I think, really sad about that. I agree with you, Tilly. I think that university is all about learning how to think, isn't it? And yeah, you need, for sure. You I need think... that for every job. Humanities, the sort of the English and history, it allows us to explore and work out how to argue different different points, which we are going to need. Well, yeah, it's not all of, if I'm honest, I didn't read half the books on my syllabus. I mean, sorry to all the professors that <laughs> that would be tuning in, but I didn't read half the books. But yeah, I wrote the essays and uh, things like that and did the extra reading around it. And I think that was a massive skill that I definitely gained through university yeah. and studying English. So I'm sad that there's going to be a generation that might not have the opportunity. Well, let's hope that that doesn't happen. I was going to say, I will fight for this. I will yeah. fight for this cause tooth and nail. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was really interesting input. ESD yeah. not about getting a job is it it's about the journey isn't it not the it end, is. The end it is oh. absolutely we've got yeah. a long life to get jobs <laughs> right it's about the journey mm. not the destination that counts so julian what do you think about it what did you study at uni uh, well, I, I, I studied um, theology. Be um, <clears throat> I was going to uh, to um, to choose history, but then at the time I thought I was going to go into the church, so I, I switched to theology, which probably was a mistake. Um, but it was part and parcel of of that. But when I went to university, and I think when you went, yeah. we. It was coincidental. When I decided to do history, it wasn't with any idea that I was going to teach or that I was going to 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 have a fantastic job that was going to pay me more. It was what, because basically those who, who did go to university um, did it because it, it would make you a rounder person. Now, yes. that's not saying that those who didn't go weren't, because in my sixth form, um, in fact, out of the whole sixth form, I should think probably 20% or Less than 20% of us went to university. I think when, we, rest... fin- when we finished our degree, sort of back in <clears throat> the uh, depths of time, uh, 5% of uh, you, you, 5% of the population completed a university degree. Right, yeah. Well, the others in the sixth form, they went on to apprenticeships. So they went on to um, British Aerospace to do um, uh, aerospace engineering. And others went into the insurance business. And I remember uh, one of um, Judy Shaw, who was um, uh, in the sixth form, very bright. She was deciding whether she wanted to go to university or not, but she wanted to go into banking. But she decided to go into banking and became very successful. She didn't have to have a degree. Yeah, I find yes. it interesting that uh, this is this this has come out from um, Sheffield Callum University and but I don't and really others, want to knock though. it well no but I'm just saying that my yeah. point is Sheffield Hallam is an airsats university that used to be a polytechnic now polytechnics had a very good 
place in 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 the education system which they dealt with academic with 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 practical subject engineering in fact actually some polytechnics had better engineering facilities than even oxford university had so maybe there are too many universities out there chasing the same number of 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 students but just to decide that oh well it's a low value because it's not going to get you a degree well also then the university is in danger of making themselves rather pointless because if then you're going to do that sort of thing then then maybe um, students say, well, there's no point me going to saddle myself with this vast amount of money for a degree on the chance. Maybe I shall go and do an apprenticeship. Maybe I shall go and become an apprentice plumber and get my master's certificate, an apprentice builder, and so on. I mean, for example... In the good old days, you know, students that went to, uh, wanted to do law, they didn't have to have a law degree. Even if they had a law degree, they had to become article clerks. Now mm. they're forced to have a law degree to do what they, what they would have done before. So I think it is a shame because subjects there, not everybody wants to be going out and say, Oh, right. I must have some great value for my money. And so yeah. to demean English or other, um, uh, subjects that are not, um, immediately going to get you a, um, uh, of a high-paid job, it, it's just a great pity. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting that there's a, quite a, a focus on getting results, you know, in order to be, you know, to go to university, you need A's and A stars and things because it's so competitive. Mm. And I was reading that actually one of the problems we have in schools is that school children actually are not choosing to do A-level English. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons behind that is that if you do maths or science, there's going to be an answer that is either correct or incorrect. But obviously the idea of um, an English or any of the humanities is that you could argue any case. And as long as you've got the, um, the evidence to support your argument and it's a considered piece, then mm. actually there's value to that. Um, so there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer. So it might be if you've answered one and it's not the way the uh, the marker wants it, then you, you don't necessarily get a, a good mark and you can't say, this is what I need to do to get a good mark. Well, that's true. But then also there are there are candidates like me that, you know, you had to do the humanities because I couldn't do maths and science. I mean, yeah. <laughs> So I was, so I, I was struggling to find the right answer in mathematics, and so, <laughs> so I had to go on to do English literature and, but and I history. I don't think English literature or history or any of those other events are actually um, a poor value. Um, no, no, course no, at not. all. I no. think they're really they're really important, and um, I think the the point about doing something that you enjoy for three years, yes, is exactly also very important yeah. because yeah. I think especially now our um, retirement age seems to be getting further and further away. Yeah. Um, you we can change our jobs so many times through our lifestyle. Through well, our we lifetime. do, and and we know very much of of of, of, of a friend of of, of ours. Um, he studied um, archaeology at university, but has actually got a very good career. But it's nothing to do with archaeology. But he enjoyed doing the archaeology. Yes, for the three years. Um, you know, and that and that and that was the purpose of it. You know, you've got something that you're interested in, you can expand on that, and then, but because really, in most cases, a, a degree is possibly the key towards um, uh, to getting a job. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to get you um, the, the you know the super high bit, but then again, you may not be interested in that. 
Yeah. Uh, well, and also, I think to get those really good jobs, what you also need to do is work work hard at them and want them. And that's yes. not about the education that you've got, yeah. it's about yeah. the application. Yeah. Exactly. So I think what English really gives you is that broadened understanding of mankind. It allows yes. you to be put in other people's mm. thoughts and minds mm. and different situations uh, without leaving your armchair. Exactly, yes. And all of, yes, you see, all those wonderful ideas, all those great stories yes. from the classics um, through to, well, so anything, um, you know, crime stories, um, great literary works, whatever, romance stories, they're all there. It's all swirling around, you know, yeah. because even Shakespeare wrote romance stories. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. There's supposed to be only seven stories in this world. Mm. And we're all part of that. Exactly. Somewhere, somehow. Indeed. Yeah, so I, I think so. Our job on turning pages, I think, is to just get people to read more. Yes, and, and that is it, really. It's just that, that leisure time and, and do it with literally a physical book in your hand because on a screen it's not quite the same thing. But if you can get the physical book and just sit down, give yourself half an hour um, and, and just enjoy. And it's a bit like, you know, it's almost like um, tasting wine. You know, you have a sip of wine, and I don't really like that one. Same with the book. You can open it up at the first uh, first chapter and read it which is what I do when I go to something. I, do. I just, just read the first, you know, uh, 10, 15 lines. And if, if the style of the, of, the, uh, of the writer gets me, great, I'll buy it. And if it doesn't, then you put it aside. Go and yes. choose something else. Yeah. Many a time I've been wasting time in a bookshop and ended up having to buy the book because it's so good. I mean, you know, I've just right. opened a book, yes. not wanting to buy a book. I'm just, you know, <laughs> spending some time. <laughs> Drat, this book is so good, I've I got know, to buy it. Absolutely. <laughs> Sat there chortling away or whatever it might be. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you have just had your um, your um, GCSE or your A-level results, I really hope they went well for you. But if not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But just on a little postscript on, oh, yes. um, on English, yes. well, we've got to give um, congratulations to Lady Louise Windsor, who passed her oh, exams, yes. and she is going to St Andrews University to read, tra-la, English. Well done. There yes. you are. Yes. And that was great because she was just working in the garden centre, wasn't she? Over I the know summer? she was on that. And some people were saying, oh, she was on minimum wage. But, you know, as I was one, one uh, columnist in the Telegraph said, but it didn't really, it doesn't really matter that her parents live in a 30 million pound house. She was earning her own money. Yes. And that will give her that little bit extra freedom, you know, and that was it. And by all accounts, she was actually a charming shop assistant, you oh, know, I'm very sure friendly. She was. Yes. Yeah. And then went and, uh, well, she probably uh, trimming um, um, the stock and everything, helping out. And yeah, good. And that was another thing. Going on, I know we're slightly away from books, but we'll keep with uh, Lady Louise because she's our link with English literature. Um, but it's that's the other thing is that uh, again, so few um, teenagers have, um, uh, go out and get a Saturday job, which is I think is such a shame. Oh, do you know we were talking about that the other day? I think mm. they obviously live such comfortable lives. I know. I know. Did whenever you, you, I needed my yeah. jobs, it was to pay for something. I yeah, needed well, exactly. spending money because I was going on holiday yeah. with the school or whatever. Because yeah. I think you worked in a bookshop. <laughs> I worked uh, in a bookshop to get my uh, drivers to pay for my driving lessons. Yeah, and I got a job in an ironmonger's to get out of going to judo classes, which I was useless <laughs> at. But my father insisted on doing it and <laughs> pretended I need to earn the money to buy my sister's eighteenth um, birthday present. But it was a job that I loved. And what you know, did you I, buy it? A uh, hairdryer. Oh, that's a good present. Yes. And I tell you the brand, but I don't think we're allowed to advertise. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. <laughs> what a lovely, what a lovely brother you were. <laughs> 
In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. One that's made entirely out of syrup. <laughs> well, this is Turning Pages on River Radio, your book program. Now, thank you for listening. If you've only just joined us, never fear. You can catch up by tuning into our podcast from whichever service you use and prefer. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast and listen whenever and wherever you like. Now, River Radio has a host of extra programs which you can listen to, from music to talk shows, as well as your favourite cultural programme, um, Talking Pages, of course. So why not make it a weekly uh, date with Turning Pages? We're on every Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon and repeated on Saturdays, um, each Saturday afternoon between 2 and 3pm. Yes, so as this is the time for some holidays, still we thought it'd be a good idea to spend some time talking about britain's favorite topic the weather and we've certainly had our share of weather recently with heat waves unbelievable temperatures drought and thunderstorms and lightning with the inevitable flooding in parts of the capital and beyond i've got a wedding coming up next weekend this weekend and we're all praying it's not going to rain for that yes so Mm -hmm. with such a wide variety of weather choices we've also had a wide variety of books to choose from so to start us off we're going to have a poem by the casual poet mike burton a High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes. Ooh. It was the custom that, that whenever that, Mr Thornton had been... That wasn't it, was it? No. I think we jumped the gun there. We did indeed. Oh, I've lost his poem for the minute. Let's carry on and we'll have it later. Uh, OK. So, are you going to talk whilst I'm doing this? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Well, yes. Well, basically, I think what you had chosen was going to be the high winds of Jamaica, which I think we got a little bit of an inkling. Um, And uh, it was it's been acquired as sort of status as a classic. Um, Martin Amis, who was one of the children in the film of the book, describes it as a thrillingly good book. And we have a little bit of a reading. Have you got it there, Heather? You did a moment ago. We do. Yeah, absolutely. Here it is. A High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes It was the custom that whenever Mr Thornton had been to St Anne's, John and Emily should run out to meet him and ride back with him, one perched on each of his stirrups. That Sunday evening they ran out as soon as they saw him coming, in spite of the thunderstorm that by now was clattering over their very heads, with the lightning bounding from tree to tree, bouncing about the ground, while the thunder seemed to proceed from violent explosions in your own very core. "'Go back, go back, you damned little fools!' Mr Thornton yelled furiously. "'Get into the house!' They stopped aghast and began to realise that after all it was a storm of more than ordinary violence. They discovered that they were drenched to the skin and must have been the moment they left the house.' 
The lightning kept up a continuous blaze. It was playing about their father's stirrup irons, and all of a sudden they realised that he was afraid. They fled to the house, shocked to the heart, and he was in the house almost as soon as they were. Mrs Thornton rushed out, saying that she thought the worst was over now. Perhaps it was, but all through supper the lightning shone almost without flickering, and John and Emily could hardly eat. The memory of that momentary look on their father's face haunted them. It was an unpleasant meal altogether. The lightning kept up its play. The thunder made talking arduous, but no one was anyhow in a mood to chatter. Only thunder was heard, and the hammering of the rain. But suddenly, close under the window, there burst out the most appalling and human shriek of terror. Tabby! cried John, and they all rushed to the window. But Tabby had already flashed into the house, and behind him was a whole club of wild cats in hot pursuit. John momentarily opened the dining-room door, and Puss slipped in, dishevelled and panting. Not even then did the brutes desist. What insane fury led these jungle creatures to pursue him into the very house is unimaginable. But there they were in the passage, caterwauling in concert. And as if at their incantation, the thunder awoke anew, and the lightning nullified the meagre table lamp. It was such a din as you could not speak through. Tabby, his fur on end, pranced up and down the room, his eyes blazing, talking and sometimes exclaiming in a tone of voice the children had never heard him use before, and which made their blood run cold. He had gone utterly manic, and in the passage hell's pandemonium reigned terrifically. Outside, above the door, the fanlight was long since broken. Something black and yelling flashed through the fanlight, landing clean in the middle of the supper table, scattering the forks and spoons and upsetting the lamp. And another and another, but already Tabby was through the window and streaking again for the bush. The whole dozen of those wild cats leapt one after the other, clean through the fanlight, onto the supper table, and away from there, only too hot in his tracks. In a moment, the whole devil hunt and its hopeless quarry had vanished into the night. There you are. There's some weather for you. Indeed, yes. And of course, Jamaica is uh, is prone to hurricanes, isn't it? It's, uh, it is. Yes. We stayed at this house once um, in Jamaica, and it had a. It was a beautiful house, and it had a picture book, sort of like a photographic book, of what the house was like um, five years before, when it was just basically flattened by a hurricane, and they obviously Crikey. had to then rebuild it. It was, it was incredible. So. Um, High Winds in Jamaica by Richard Hughes is a surprisingly terrifying short novel about children kidnapped by by pirates. There's a terrible hurricane and uh, obviously very dangerous to be in Jamaica. So the Bass Thorntons decide to send their children back to the safety and comfort of England. Now, on their way, their ship is set up on by pirates and the children are unintentionally taken prisoner. The captain of the ship that was taking them um, just assumed that they'd been killed and just sailed off without checking. Um, and anyway, Johnson, the uh, the well-meaning pirate captain, 
doesn't know how to dispose of this new cargo that he's been landed with. So while the children uh, adjust with surprising ease to their new life, and they basically become accomplices of the pirates in their continuing adventures. So Hughes embellishes the story with an astonishing gift for imagery and turn of phrase and a knack for the blackest kind of humour. And you can see from that excerpt what lovely language he had. Mm. It was really visually, you could, you could see it, couldn't you? You could see mm-hmm. the wind. So this strange company drifts around the Caribbean and events turn more frightening and the pirates find themselves increasingly incriminated by the children's fates. And there's actually a shocking betrayal at the end, uh, which takes place when everyone returns to civilization. Uh, so it's not quite Lord of the Flies, but a high wind in Jamaica is certainly a wickedly unsentimental portrait of childhood. And their innocence or not, I think it shows that young children are largely amoral and as such are capable of nearly anything. Um, so you can read it as an adventure story, all excitement and fun and danger, um, littered with violent destruction of a thunderstorm and of an earthquake. Um, but it's also a litany of exotic islands with a tremendous and varied cast of animals. So there's wild cats and snakes and pigs and winged cockroaches as well as lions mm. and tigers and then of course you've got the pirate crew so it's a real book for a youngster to enjoy but as an adult you can read it and you can also see the different novel looking at it from a sort of a more sinister dark darker and more complex um, and that parallel world of children and adults um, different time scales, odd priorities and contradictory values is uh, it's really good. So it's, it is a fabulous book. Mm, uh, that sounds it was, really good. It was film, it's been made into a film. And mm-hmm. uh, Martin Amos, the um, the author, actually played one of the children in the yes, film. Yes, yeah. He described <laughs> it as a thrilling good book. Uh, right, so I have found, I have found Casual Poet's poem on the weather. Shall we give okay. it a go? Okay, give it a whirl. Yeah. Have you seen the forecast? We love to talk about weather. We do it every day. And usually it's to complain about the rain in May or June or any other summer month. And then it gets too hot. Humidity. <laughs> That's a good one to converse on quite a lot. We like the snow. We hate the ice. We opine on thunderstorms. Whatever weather comes our way, discussion is the norm. It's become a kind of greeting when we pass each other by, raised eyebrows and a knowing look as we point up to the sky. Quintessentially British, a nation on the march, talking about the weather, too wet or lawns are parched. As long as it's a changing, I'll have something I can say. And if it means I get to talk to you, then weather makes my day. Oh, thank you very much, the casual poet there. That was a great, mm, great good. poem yes. about the weather. So, Jules, what's your choice of book? Well, I thought that um, as our theme this week was going to be whether it'd be an ideal opportunity for me to open my review with, it was a dark and stormy night. Yes. 
which is considered by many to be just about the worst opening um, of a novel ever written. And whilst my choice this week opens on a dark and snowy night, we are in the safe hands of Dorothy L. Sayers and thus spared a terrible opening line. Now, for my choice of this weather-related story, I've selected Dorothy L. Sayers' The Nine Tailors, which is set in the winter wonderlandscape of the Fens of East Anglia, with snow swirling all about, blocking roads and lanes before moving on to the early days of spring with its abundance of daffodils and further mystery. Is this, is list- this to, uh, to cool us down if the sun's beating yeah, out? Exactly, yes. Just think, think cool things. Yes. So we have a little, um, little introductory section which we'll uh, play for you now. The Nine Tailors by Dorothy L. Sayers. The bells are rung up. The coil of rope which it is necessary to hold in the hand before and whilst raising a bell always puzzles a learner. It gets into his face and perhaps round his neck, in which case he may be hanged. Troit on change ringing. That's torn it, said Lord Peter Whimsey. The car lay, helpless and ridiculous, her nose deep in the ditch, her back wheels cocked absurdly up on the bank, as though she were doing her best to bolt to earth and were scraping herself a burrow beneath the drifted snow. Peering through a flurry of driving flakes, Whimsy saw how the accident had come about. The narrow humpback bridge, blind as an eyeless beggar, spanned the dark drain at right angles, dropping plump down upon the narrow road that crested the dyke. Coming a trifle too fast across the bridge, blinded by the bitter easterly snowstorm, he had overshot the road and plunged down the side of the dyke into the deep ditch beyond, where the black spikes of a thorn hedge stood bleak and unwelcoming in the glare of the headlights. Right and left, before and behind, the fen lay shrouded. It was past four o'clock on New Year's Eve. The snow that had fallen all day gave back a glimmering greyness to a sky like lead. I'm sorry, said Whimsy. Whereabouts do you suppose we've got to, Bunter? The manservant consulted a map in the ray of an electric torch. I think, my lord, we must have run off the proper road at Lemholt. Unless I am much mistaken, we must be near Fenchurch St. Paul. As he spoke, the sound of a church clock, muffled by the snow, came borne upon the wind. It chimed the first quarter. Thank God, said Whimsy. Where there is a church, there is civilization. We'll have to walk it. Never mind the suitcases. We can send somebody for them. Brr! Gore, oh, it's cold. I bet that when Kingsley welcomed the wild northeaster, he was sitting indoors by a good fire eating muffins. I could do with a muffin myself. Next time I accept hospitality in the Fen country, I'll take care that it's at midsummer, or else I'll go by train. Mm. The church lies to windward of us, I fancy. It would. They wrapped their coats about them and turned their faces to the wind and snow. To the left of them the drain ran straight as a rule could make it, black and sullen, with a deep bank shelving down to its slow, unforgiving waters. To their right was the broken line of the sunk hedge, with here and there a group of poplars or willows. They tramped on in silence, the snow beating on their eyelids. At the end of a solitary mile the gaunt shape of a windmill loomed up upon the farther bank of the drain, but no bridge led to it and no light showed. 
Another half mile and they came to a signpost and a secondary road that turned off to the right. Bunter turned his torch upon the signpost and read upon the single arm. Fenchurch St. Paul. There was no other direction. Ahead, Road and Dyke marched on side by side into an eternity of winter. Fenchurch St. Paul for us, said Whimsy. He led the way into the side road, and as he did so, they heard the clock again, nearer, chiming the third quarter. A few hundred yards of solitude, and they came upon the first sign of life in this frozen desolation. On their left, the roofs of a farm, standing some way back from the road, and on the right, a small square building like a box of bricks, whose sign, creaking in the blast, proclaimed it to be the Wheatsheaf Public House. In front of it stood a small, shabby car, and from windows on the ground and first floors, light shone behind red blinds. Well, as we heard, the story opens on New Year's Eve um, with um, Lord Peter Whimsey, uh, Dorothy L. Sayers-Sleuth, and his manservant Bunter surveying their car, which has ended up in a uh, ditch after his lordship managed to overshoot the road, having been blindsided by a flurry of snow. Now, stranded in the village of Fenshirt St. Peter, uh, because of the snowstorms, uh, Peter Whimsey is invited to lodge at the vicarage um, at Fenchurch St. Peter's. Lord Peter steps in to assist the bell ringers who are due to complete an overnight nine-hour peal of bells, but are one ringer down because one of the ringers, William Thode, has been struck down with influenza and can't ring that night. Now, the, the peal goes ahead, that's fine. The following morning, Lady Thorpe, wife of the local squire, Sir Henry, dies, and it is then that Lord Peter gets to hear of the family's trauma over the past 20 years when an extremely valuable emerald necklace had been stolen and never recovered. Now, Sir Henry's former butler, Deacon, who, along with his accomplice, Cranton, from London, had been convicted and imprisoned for the theft in 1918. Deacon managed to kill a warder and escaped uh, long before the end of his prison sentence. But he apparently died shortly afterwards. His body was found in a quarry pit, still in prison clothing, two years after his escape. His widow, Mary, remarried and became Mrs. William Thilder. Oh, him of the influenza. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And why? Um, How convenient was that, we wonder. Now, the following Easter, which takes us to spring and the time of the daffodil, Sir Henry himself dies. And when his wife's grave is reopened to admit his remains, a body of a badly mutilated man is found within. Mm-hmm. Now, there are, um, uh, from there on, the plot does get rather convoluted. You need to keep a close track of Lord Peter as he begins to unravel the mystery. Uh, whose is the body? Um, is it that of an out of work labourer by the name of Stephen Driver? And where did he come from? I mean, the body's underclothes indicated that he may have lived in France. Now, Bunter, in the meantime, goes off to make some inquiries, and it reveals that Driver may have gone by the name of Paul Taylor, which, in turn, leads to a British soldier who went missing in action in 1918, um, presumed to have deserted, and seems to be, in fact, Arthur Cobley, who knew Cranton and also knew where the emeralds were hidden. See what I mean? It gets very convoluted. Now, twists and turns galore as documents are found in the bell tower point to where the emeralds are and the indicators implicating the Thodes. But how are they linked? Well, you'll simply have to read the book to find out. Yeah, I love uh, Lord Peter Whimsey books. Yes, they're good.
<laughs> yeah, they're great. And yes. the novels, because they've done loads of, Dorothy L. Sayers did lots of novels and then lots of short stories. She did, yes. And the novels, which I, I, why I particularly like them, actually chart put Peter Whimsey's decline with PTSD, because he's just come back from World War One, of course, when they're being right. written. And uh, he suffers from PTSD. And if you read the novels, it sort of shows his um, mental awareness, which I think mm-hmm. is fascinating that they're talking about that. Yes. In the uh, early 20s. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Yes. Great, great book. Yeah. Um, makes inspiring me to go home and read a Lord Peter Whimsey. Yes, indeed. Now I've chosen, I've, I've got an extra one. There's an extra oh, one. Have you? Cloud Spot, I know. Cloud Spot is Guide by Gavin Pretor Pinney, published by Scepter. Now, this was a runaway bestseller that has cloud spotters everywhere looking up to the sky to discover the weather for yourselves. Are mm-hmm. you a cloud spotter? Um, no, I can't say that I'm oh, really. Do you not, never not look at a cloud? And go, oh, I do. No, I have, yes, but I, I don't sort looks of go like out. Looks like rain. And <laughs> those dark clouds well, look like rain, or, or those clouds have got snow in them because they're a strange colour. But anyway, so Gavin Pretor Pinney is a renowned journalist and he's co founder of the Idler magazine, which I quite enjoy. And he's been obsessed with clouds since childhood, so much so that he is the founder and chair of the Cloud Appreciation Society, which I just think is amazing. And he's he believes that clouds are nature's poetry and um, everyone, it, they're there for us all to enjoy. But because their beauty is so sort of every day, they were in danger of being overlooked. And I think that's, that's true. So mm. Britain, because of our uh, landscape, we are blessed with a uniquely rich and varied cloudscape because of all the climatic conditions that swirl around the British Isles. So they probably are sadly undervalued. So this book will teach us how to appreciate the different varieties of clouds, cumulus, nimbostratus, morning glory, to name just a few. And all of their beauties and significances, both meteorological and cultural. So we learn, for example, how Hindus believed that the cumulus clouds were the spiritual cousins of elephants. We learn how thermal air currents act on fair weather cumuli and also how to save a fortune in psychiatric bills by using the clouds as Rorschach images that reflect our state of mind. You know, when you're sitting down looking at a, a cloud and imagining what uh, what image that you can see mm-hmm. there. So where do clouds come from? Why do they look the way they do? And why have they captured the imagination of timeless artists, romantic poets, and every kid who's ever held a crayon? So this book reveals there is everything you need to know about clouds. And of course, it's illustrated with striking photographs and line drawings featuring everything from classical paintings to lava lamps. So Mm. the Cloud Spotters Guide will have enthusiasts, weather watchers, and just the plain curious floating on cloud nine and looking up will never be the same again. Mm-hmm. So that's a great book. And we are now at the end of the show. So oh. books we have been recommending today are The Magician by Colm Toynbin, published by Penguin. 
Uh, Claire McIntosh is The Last Party by uh, Sphere. The Horse Whisperer by Nicholas Evans, published by Penguin. Ernest Shackleton South, published by Penguin. We've got The Cloud Spotter's Guide by Gavin Pretor-Pinney, which is published by Scepter. And The High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes, published by Vintage. And finally, we have The Nine Tailors by Dorothy L. Sayers, Sayers, published by Hodder Paperbacks. So thank you very much for joining us this morning and listening to Turning Pages on River Radio. And do tell your friends if you've enjoyed it. Uh, We're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share. And listening to River Radio and Turning Pages has never been easier. Now we're broadcasting on DAB. So you can listen on almost any internet connected device or smart speaker. And don't forget that you can listen to any of our past programmes through our podcast. Just turn on, just search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast. So thank you for joining us and we look forward to you joining us next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Paperback writer.